Well, good morning, everyone. Glad you could join us on this uh, Tuesday uh, as we study the Word of God together. Good morning, Lon. Glad you could be with us back live. And uh, I agree with Dale. Hope your move went well from uh, Boise, Idaho. Excellent. I'm glad to have you with us. So uh, today we're continuing our look at the law of Moses and the law of Christ. And uh, good morning, Patty. Just saw you pop up there. Um, and we're going to start with a chapter in the New Testament that is uh, often a, uh, a theological football, if you will, or maybe that's not quite the right way to say it. It's, a, uh, it's kind of one side in the Calvinist-Arminian debate. This is a chapter that is often used on one side in particular, and that is, uh, from the Calvinist perspective, Romans chapter 9. If you have studied this chapter, and if you've studied uh, God's sovereign election and Cal what we typically refer to as Calvinism, you're very familiar with Romans chapter 9. It's the, the section that talks about um, uh, the, the pot not talking back to the potter, and God hardening Pharaoh's heart, and the question is provoked, who can, uh, who can defy his will, that kind of thing. We've got vessels of mercy, vessels of, uh, of wrath in there. And that's what we typically think of Romans, <coughs> excuse me, Romans 9 uh, as this, uh, this passage for the debate of God's sovereignty. But it begins on a much more personal note. The context is not theological, it's biblical historical, it, it's the Apostle Paul answering the question, has God failed in his promises to Israel? That's really what chapters 9, 10, 11 of Romans are about. And God's sovereignty is included in those chapters, but not as abstract theology, but as answering the question, has God failed Israel? And we, in that uh, chapter, Paul begins with, again, a very personal note. Let's look at it, Romans chapter 9, verse 1. He says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Do you, do you feel the weight of this? <coughs> Uh, Paul is not simply having a theology lesson here. Th these are heavy terms. Great sorrow, unceasing grief in his heart. What is it that is weighing on him? What is it that's causing, the, causing this continual uh, feeling of, of grief and sorrow? He goes on, verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed. This is the word anathema that Paul uses in Galatians to say if anybody comes to you and preaches a gospel different from the one that I'm preaching, let him be anathema, let him be set apart by God for his wrath, let him be damned. Paul says, I could wish that I were accursed from Christ for the sake of my brethren. Now, what brethren? Is he talking here about his, his siblings, his brothers? No. He defines them. My kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites. 
Do you feel the weight of this? Paul has unceasing grief in his heart because he realizes his fellow Israelites are cut off from Christ. Obviously, he's referring to the Israelites of his day who did not receive Jesus as the Messiah. And since they rejected Jesus, they, they didn't believe in him, they are, they are a curse. They are anathema to God. They are cut off. And Paul is saying, I could wish that, that I could replace them or, or take their place and be the one who's cut off if it means that they would be received by God and acceptable to God. So you see what, it, see what it's doing here. Uh, he's saying that in his day, the Israelites were separated from God. Paul is near to God. Paul is, is a Christian. He has received Messiah. The Jews didn't. And they are in this position of cursed by God. They're, they're, they're cut off. They're separated from Messiah. And he says, I, I, I wish I could take their place. He says they're Israelites. And notice how he describes them here. Israelites to whom belong the adoption as sons. God took their forefather Abraham and his offspring, Isaac and Jacob, and the 12 tribes of Jacob, and adopted Israel as his son. And in the book of Exodus, God calls Israel my firstborn, my firstborn son. When he, when he calls uh, Pharaoh to let them go, he says, this is my firstborn son, you let him go. And you remember how the story plays out? God kills the firstborn sons of Pharaoh and all the Egyptians, but he saves his firstborn son, which is Israel. God adopted Israel. Of all the peoples on the earth, God adopted Israel as his special people, his sons. So that's what Paul's getting at here. To the Israelites, they to whom belong the adoption as sons, the glory, this would be the Shekinah glory. You remember when, uh, whenever God wanted the Jews to, uh, to move uh, from place to place, he would put his cloud in the sky uh, by day and the, the fire, the flame of fire by night. And then whenever they were to settle in a, for a while, uh, the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory would fill the tabernacle and Moses would go in and, and talk to God there. It was, it was the Jews, the, the Israelites who had the Shekinah glory, the presence of God. None of the other nations had, had this. It was to the Israelites that belonged the covenants. Going back to the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant and the Davidic covenant, when God promised that David would always have a descendant who sits on the throne, David was a Jew. He was the king of the Jews. And so the promises of the covenants were all to Israel. And then notice what he says next. To the Israelites belong the giving of the law. What law? The law that we call the law of Moses, including the Ten Commandments. It was to the Jews, to the Israelites, that this law was given. What is it, as you read through the Bible, what is it that separates Jews and Gentiles? 
right? As you're re- <coughs> reading through the Old Testament, um, this is February 15th. So some of you are uh, in the middle of your reading through the Bible in a year plan. And you may be somewhere in Exodus or Leviticus, depending on uh, which uh, which uh, plan you're following. Maybe you're in, in Numbers or Deuteronomy, somewhere along there, if it's a more aggressive uh, plan, if it's especially if it's Old Testament uh, focused here at the beginning. As you read through the Old Testament, you will see that certainly by the time you get to Exodus, there are basically two people groups in the world, Jews and non-Jews. Jews and what the Bible calls the nations, the Gentiles, right? That, that, that's how God divides the whole world in the Old Testament, the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews and the nations. Well, what is it that separates the Jews from the Gentiles? What marks the Jews from all the other nations? Well, it's these things, their adoption, the glory, the covenants, but Binding all of it together, the focal point of division is that the Jews had the law, including the Ten Commandments. That law, that covenant that God made with Israel, with Moses as a mediator, the law at its heart, that law was not given to anyone else. That covenant was not given to anybody else. God did not make a covenant with the Philistines. He did not make a covenant with the, the Canaanites or the Amorites. He did not make a covenant with the Babylonians or the Greeks or the Romans. God has not made a covenant with the United States of America or Canada or Mexico. What marked the Jewish people as unique was the covenant, the law covenant that God made with them. Moses makes a big deal of this in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, do you remember what Deuteronomy means? The word itself, it means second law. Deuteronomy, this is the, uh, the, the title given to that fifth book of the Bible, the, f- the fifth book of the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy. Deutero is the Greek word for second. Nomos is the Greek word for law. So Deuteronomy is second law. And the reason it's called the second law is because, if you recall, historically, and we looked at this in previous series, uh, God gave his law to Israel in Exodus 20. That's where he first gave the Ten Commandments. That's where he called Israel to himself at uh, Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb. And there he said, if you will keep my commandments, (coughs) then you will be a people for my own possession. You'll be special to me. You'll be a, a holy nation and a royal priesthood. And if you recall, when we looked at that before, the central word there is if, if you keep my law. And then he gave them, so that was Exodus 19, Exodus 20, he gives them the Ten Commandments. This is the heart of the law that he gave with them. And then he took these uh, people to the edge of the land of Canaan and said, go in there and conquer the, uh, the Canaanites. And you remember the story, they sent in the spies, the spies came back and said, we can't do this. Those people are big, they're powerful, they will destroy us. 
And of the spies that were sent in, only Joshua and Caleb trusted the Lord that he would give them victory. The other 10 turned away and said, no, we can't do this. And they turned the Israelites against Moses and really against God. And they did not trust God that he could deliver them. Well, God was furious with them. And he says, I swore that those people would not enter into the promised land. They would not enter my rest, as he called it. So he took that nation, the nation of Israel, and led them out into the desert for 40 years. And everyone who is over the age of 20 died in the wilderness. That is everyone except Moses and Joshua and Caleb. Everyone else over the age of 40 died or uh, over the age of 20. Well, after those 40 years of wandering in the, in the wilderness, he brought them back to the promised land. And that's when the leadership was transitioned from Moses to Joshua. And Joshua carried them in and defeated the Canaanites. And they then occupied the promised land. Well, before they went in to conquer that land, Moses, before he died, gave the law again. He gave the law a second time. Deuteronomy, second law. He gave them the law a second time because this generation, they were young when God gave the law at uh, Mount Sinai. They didn't know all the terms. And, and remember, this is before the time of, uh, of copiers and uh, information, internet. It's not like God could publish the law and now everybody could just pull it on their phones and, and read it. No, they, they had, had it written down uh, and the Ten Commandments were on tablets of stone. And they, they wrote the other in the book of the law, the scroll, but it, not everybody had their own copy. Uh, so they didn't all know this. So, so Paul, uh, Paul huh, Moses had to repeat the law a second time to this new generation so that they would keep it when they entered into the promised land. So in Deuteronomy, Moses is explaining the privilege the Jews have in having this law from God. Let me uh, show you Deuteronomy 4, starting in verse 5. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me. He says, I, I've, I've repeated to you all the commands, all the things God has given, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is wise and understanding. See what he's doing here? The laws I've given you, so it's the Ten Commandments plus all the ex extension of the laws and commandments and statutes that he describes here. This will set you apart as a wise and understanding people. You'll be unlike all the other nations. You see, what it, see what's getting here? This, the, the law of God, the law of Moses, as we call it, is what's going to set them apart. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? You, God is near you. Then he goes on and says, Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today. To the Jews, he's saying, no nation has these statutes and judgments that you have. Skipping down to verse 10. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, or Mount Sinai, same place, 
When the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on earth, and that they may teach their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but you saw no form, only a a voice. And notice this. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Do you see what Moses is doing here? He's saying, on Mount Horeb, God gave you his covenant. And what does he equate the covenant to? The Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone. See, what we so often do when we think about the Ten Commandments and the law is we read theology books. We read systematicians. We read the writings of men instead of reading what the Bible says. Now, I know there are a lot of great theologians who mean well, who believe that they are teaching God's truth as they go back and look at the, the writings of men in their tradition, whether it's the Reformed groups or Lutheran groups or whatever, go back and read the traditions of men, and it all makes sense logically. God has a law for all of his people, and the Ten Commandments seem like such a great, um, a great foundation for God's law, and then we expand on that and start teaching everybody that this is the heart of God's law for everybody. That's not how the Ten Commandments are given in the Scripture. We see it very clearly here. The law is the heart of is the covenant God made with Israel, and the Ten Commandments. Moses is basically equating his covenant with those 10 words or those 10 commandments. So if you are going to argue that the 10 commandments are binding on anyone other than the Jews, you're going to have to show us from Scripture that that is true. Because in its historical setting, in Deuteronomy here, the 10 commandments form the heart of God's covenant, not with any other nation than Israel herself. And Paul said in Romans 9, this is what set Israel apart. This is what made them unique. They had the law. So then Paul writes to another church at Corinth. And there he begins to describe his missionary work. And he's explaining the lengths to which he will go to be a good missionary. Uh, My daughter just got back from the Middle East, and she was there almost a month. And she had the great opportunity to be part of a a culture that is very, very different from ours here in the U.S. And the goal was to... uh, to go and, and preach the gospel, right? That's what, uh, that's what we do when, as Christians when we go to foreign lands. Well, what do you do when, uh, if, you've, if you know people, maybe some of you are missionaries or former missionaries, what, what do missionaries do? Well, they train, and they, and they train, of course, in the scripture and in, in the gospel, 
because they want to go preach the gospel and make converts, make disciples. But you don't just walk into a place and, and start talking. Uh, I mean, you can do that, but so often uh, the better approach is to really learn their culture and, and act like them as much as you can. Right, so you don't want to offend, and you and you want to find some some common cultural ground so that you can you can kind of fit in and win a hearing. That's what you want to do when you go to a, uh, any place that you're trying to preach the gospel. You want to win a hearing, and you don't want to do anything unnecessarily uh, offensive and uh, and repulsive to to the people because you you want them to want to listen to you. So that's what Paul is describing in First Corinthians chapter nine. He's explaining the links that he he went to to try to win people to the gospel. And uh, here's what he says in verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. I'm a free man, he says, but I've become the slave to all. <coughs> Why? So that I may win more. You see that? His evangelistic heart here is front and center. Now, for our purposes, he's using some examples to explain what he means that he's become a slave to all. But notice the significance of what he says. To the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I may win the Jews. Do you see that? Now, who is this Paul we're talking about here? Do you remember what he said to the Philippians? We looked at this in our study of Philippians. Look what he says here. He says, I myself might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone has, has mind to be confident in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, so he was a natural-born Jew, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless." This man, he calls himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews, born under the law, born of the tribe of Benjamin. And here he says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win the Jews. What? <laughs> Do you see what he's doing? He's distancing himself from the Jews and saying, in my zeal to win people to Christ, when I'm around Jews... I become as a Jew. I, I'm an American. I'm a natural-born U.S. citizen, born in St. Louis, Missouri. I live here in America. Can, can you imagine me saying to the Americans, I became like Americans? You would rightfully say, well, wait a minute, Doug. Aren't you American? Paul, aren't you a Jew? Paul would say, no. Not really. His identity has changed. In, in Ephesians, he talks about one new man that God took from the Jews and the Gentiles and made them into one new man. Elsewhere, he talks about the new creation. The new creation often in the scripture, is not talking about the new heavens and new earth. It's talking about that one new man that God made out of the Jews and the Gentiles, those who are in Christ. There, there's a third category. There's Jews, there's Gentiles, and then out of both of those groups, 
God is making a new creature, a new man. This is the new thing Isaiah predicted. It's a Christian. And Paul now primarily identifies himself as a Christian. Now, when he's with the Jews, he will readily call himself a Jew. He does that several times in the New Testament because he wants to win the Jews. But when he's not among the Jews, his primary self-designation, the way he thinks of himself, is in Christ. When he's with the Jews, he acts like a Jew so that he can win them. Now, there are others who became Jewish, but they weren't natural born, right? They were proselytes. They, they uh, were circumcised and, and agreed to obey the law of Moses, but they weren't born into a Jewish family. So he addresses them next to those who are under the law. That would be the, the proselytes. To those who are under the law, I became as under the law. And here's what is so important for us for this study. Though not being myself under the law. Do you see that? This is a man who is a trained Pharisee. A man who said to the Philippians, he was the most zealous adherent to the law of Moses the, the world has ever seen. He was so zealous for the law, in fact, he would kill Christians before he was converted. And now he is saying, I myself am not under the Mosaic law. And notice he doesn't give any distinctions. He does not say, well, I'm under the moral law. I'm just not under the ceremonial law or the civil law. We talked about that yesterday. Those are distinctions theologians make. Those are not distinctions the Bible makes anywhere. Paul treats the law here as a unit. The law of Moses is what set Israel apart. And Paul says, I'm not under that law. When I'm with converts to Judaism, when I'm with proselytes, those who are under the law, (coughs) I act like one under the law. If it'll give me a hearing, if it'll give me the opportunity to preach Christ, I will do that. He would keep the Sabbath when he's among those who keep the Sabbath so that that wouldn't be an unnecessary obstacle. We see examples of him keeping vows in the book of Acts, vows that he no longer sees necessary. But but the the Christian Jews there, the, the converts from Judaism, were weighing heavy on him saying, Paul, there's all kinds of rumors going on around about you and and." You can, you can stay here and not be persecuted and, and get a hearing if you'll keep these vows, you know, shaving your head and, and abstaining some, from some food and stuff. And he said, okay, I'll do that for a while. Not because he felt like he needed to before God, but he was trying to win the right to, to preach the gospel to these people. This is a big statement for our study. He says, myself, me, Paul, former Jew, I'm not under the law. There's another category, those who are not under the law, the Gentiles, the other group, the other people group, right? So what he addresses here in verse 21, to those who are without law, as without law. In fact, I, I 
spoke as or I acted as those without law when I was like them. So he didn't keep Jewish things. He didn't keep the Sabbath uh, when he was with Gentiles. And then he makes this very important statement. Though not being without the law of God. Now, put your thinking caps on here, folks. He just said, I am not under the law of Moses. He says here, though not being without the law of God. This is so important, especially if you come from a a Reformed background, a Covenant background, Presbyterian background, a Reformed Baptist, uh, any of the Reformed churches. You have been taught that the Ten Commandments is the eternal moral law of God. It is equal to, synonymous with the law of God. Paul says no. He says, I am not under the law of Moses, including the Ten Commandments. But I'm not without the law of God. You see that? So there's the law of God and there's the law of Moses. They are not synonymous. Paul is under the law of God, or he has the law of God, and it is not the law of Moses that he just said he's not under that law. Well, then what law are you under, Paul? He answers the question. I'm not without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. For us as Christians, now that we have the full story in the scripture, we now know what the law of God is. What is the law that he wants you to keep? What is the law that he requires all man everywhere to keep? What is the law by which all men will be judged? The law of Christ. Jesus is our lawgiver. He is our commander-in-chief. We serve him. We obey him. Great Commission. Go and teach the nations to obey all that I commanded you. It's very important for understanding the role of the law and the Ten Commandments in the history of redemption and through the Scripture. We will come back and look at more of that. I see a a question or comment here from Karen. Let's see what she said. She said, Paul, and I'm not sure what that is referring to. Paul took a stand against circumcision, but there may be another reason why he stood firm on that with Peter. Um, Let me think if I can figure out what you're saying here. Uh, Paul did take a stand against circumcision. Now, what would you, if you, if you have a moment and want to follow up, I'm not sure what you mean. Uh, he stood firm on that with Peter. Uh, I don't know if this is what you're getting at, but let me uh, let me see if this is what you're getting at. So, one of the requirements of the law of Moses was circumcision. And if you remember, with Timothy, Paul had him circumcised because Paul's father was a Greek, and the Jews would have nothing to do with Paul if he brought along with him this young man who had not been circumcised. And apparently Timothy was pretty popular. People knew that that Timothy was not uh, from a 
pure Jewish family. So Paul had Timothy circumcised, not because he believed it was required, but as a, a just what he was saying to, to the Jews, he became as a Jews, and he said, Timothy, I want you to get circumcised so that this is not an unnecessary obstacle to, to teaching the gospel. Then there's Titus, another young protege of Paul. Titus, they wanted to circumcise Titus, and he said, Paul said, absolutely not. Do not circumcise Titus, for which I'm sure Titus was, was very thankful if you put yourself as an adult male and the people are arguing about whether or not you should be circumcised in those days without uh, anesthesia and, and so on. Paul said, absolutely not. Do not circumcise him. Why? Because in that setting, they were saying he must be circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul says, no, 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 no. No. If anybody is around here listening and they think circumcision has anything to do with with salvation, absolutely not. Do not circumcise him. So you see the difference? When it was simply a matter of trying to win a hearing with the Jews, yeah, circumcise Timothy. But when it's a matter of the gospel is going to be mixed or confused with something like circumcision, Paul says, absolutely not. I won't do it. So, Karen, I don't know if that's the kind of thing you were talking about. Um, I don't see a follow-up here. Um, if you want to leave something. Yes, okay. I don't. You said yes, so maybe that's what you're talking about. And if you want to uh, add something to the comments when we get done here, I'll be happy to uh, come back and address it later. So our time has run out, so we're gonna we're gonna leave this for today. But but let this let this kind of settle in in your thinking as you think about First Corinthians nine. Very important passage. Paul says there is a law of God that is not the law of Moses. We submit to the law of Christ. So Christian today, serve Christ, obey Him. You are under His law. You are united with Christ, and and therefore. You are to please him and honor him and obey him with everything you do. That is God's law for you. And we'll come back tomorrow and continue this study. God bless.